This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome to Health and Living with me, Lim Suan. This is NCD Chronicles, a series where we go beyond the disease diagnosis to look at the lived experiences and real challenges faced by people who have non-communicable diseases. This episode features Noraza Abdul-Aziz, more fondly known as Mama Aza to those around her, who was a school principal based in Kuala Trunganu when the unexpected happened. She had a stroke. I suffered a stroke in April 2017. At that time, I was still working and it took me about four months before I managed to get back to my workplace, which even the doctors say that that was quite remarkable, quite a fast recovery on my part. Mama Aza initially brushed off her symptoms, but it quickly became clear that something was wrong when her symptoms got worse. On the day I suffered the stroke, it was Sunday on the 9th of April, 2017. I just came back from a meeting at state level where all the head principals uh, uh, gathered. I was having a late lunch at home, actually around like 3 p.m. when suddenly I felt a weakness in my right hand. But I brushed it off thinking that it was just, uh, it's just physical fatigue because I didn't experience any like dizziness or whatsoever. Things have been going quite fast and hectic for me since I became a school principal in 2013. And prior to that, I had a fracture. I had a fracture in my left leg in November 2016. And I was still recuperating when I was promoted to a better school in early February. 2017. Then again in March, KPM sent me to Manila for a short course of 10 days. And I was still in a wheelchair, you know, because the fracture was not fully healed yet. It was uh, the next morning, it's on the 10th of April 2017, that suddenly I experienced a weakness in my right leg and I couldn't stand up. So being shocked, I called my husband and he took me to a clinic nearby. After checking my blood pressure, which was quite high, uh, about 159 over 113, the doctor diagnosed that I was having symptoms of a stroke. So my husband took me to emergency at Hospital Sutanah Nur Zahira. After you know, being run an MRI, there was... The doctor found that there was a blood clot in my right brain and I was warded for four days. During that time, my right hand and leg were paralyzed. Because I didn't see it coming, you see? I didn't see it coming. I didn't expect me to be to to to, to suffer a stroke. Because I thought that I was doing well. I was taking good care of my diet, even. But uh, perhaps other factors could have triggered the stroke. Up until recently, stroke has steadily remained the third leading cause of death in Malaysia for years. In 2021, it became the fourth leading cause of death only because it was surpassed by COVID-19. 
However, that doesn't take away from the fact that the stroke burden remains, and we're still seeing thousands of people dying from it and thousands more left with disabilities after a stroke. World Stroke Organization stats, one person in four will have a stroke in their lifetime. So many of us will know a relative, a family member, or even an office colleague who's had a stroke. That was Tracy Chan, Head of Rehabilitation at the National Stroke Association of Malaysia, more commonly referred to as NASAM, and they are a non-governmental organisation that focuses on stroke prevention as well as providing affordable rehabilitation. At NASAM, Tracy and her colleagues see firsthand just how devastating a stroke can be for the individual as well as their family members. It's the third leading cause of death in Malaysia. In 2019, we had 47,000 plus incident cases. Of them, those to close to 20K died. And in 2019 itself, we had about 4,500 prevalent cases. So that's a lot out there in 2019. These risk factors are causing a lot of strokes and risk factors are manageable. They are all the NCDs we know about. But I think of interest, the largest increase in stroke happened in the years between 35 to 39 years old. So we cannot say that stroke is going to be an old person's disease that we will see in our grandparents or, you know, in the elderly folk. We are looking at a population that's in the middle of work, in the middle of raising Kids peaking in their career and getting a stroke. So there's something we always talk about called the Disability Adjusted Life Year, which basically represents the loss of the equivalent of one year of full health. So if a person loses a year of full health, basically the person can't work, uh, needs to be supported, needs help, which means a higher burden on society. And in 2019, we lost about 512,000 EALYS. So that's a lot of years lost to a stroke. The impact of a stroke differs from individual to individual because it depends on the right thing being done at the right time. And for someone who has suffered a stroke, that means getting them to the hospital as quickly as possible. Medical practice, we will say time equals brain. The longer the brain is without oxygen the more the brain cells are going to die. The more brain cells die, the greater the disability, the less I can save in the brain. Because while the brain is trying to gasp for breath in, med- in a non-medical way, you can still resuscitate part of it. But if you, there's not enough blood for a long time, a lot of it's just going to go. So the faster you get medical attention in a hospital, in an emergency department, okay, and get the blood flow normalized to the brain again to save whatever there is there, the less the disability. The time frame is normally three, max four hours. Because every minute, every second, brain cells are dying. And it's through an emergency department, it's by an ambulance as quickly as possible. We do have something known as the uh, MyStroke Hospital app which can tell you where the nearest stroke-ready hospital is. But if there's none nearby, just go to the nearest one and sort it out. This is the where the awareness comes in. 
if they've done the correct steps and they're in the correct hospital, like one of those that are stroke ready or a stroke comprehensive hospital, then the outlook is a bit better because they can then try and save as much of the brain as they can. But if they don't get to a hospital or they've collapsed at home and nobody's there to help them, then the outlook is poorer because then the damage is greater. So it, it really, really depends how fast did they get to the hospital? How fast did they get the intervention? Other things that you look at, things like age, how old are they, you know. Sometimes also depending on, you know, income and also see how they go after that with the stroke accessibility to rehab. Initial one is how fast they get there. Even though Mama Aza's initial recovery was fairly quick, she was back at work four months later, it was born out of sheer determination, as well as accessibility to rehabilitation, and in her case, a personal physiotherapist. I was given the first appointment for physiotherapy one month after I suffered the stroke, which was quite late, you know. It's detrimental for recovery. One of the doctors suggested me of getting a personal physiotherapist to speed up the process of recovery. This is because the hospital could only set a, a, an appointment one month after a patient suffers a stroke. I was very lucky because my niece just graduated in physiotherapy. So she visited me at home and assured me that she will help me recover. So she came for two hours in the evenings, but I would do an extra two hours of exercise on my own in the mornings. And that went on for like one month. And miraculously, on the 16th day, I was able to stand up and walk using a walking frame, which was much faster than her anticipated of a month for me to be able to be able to do so because I was determined to get well as soon as possible to improve on, you know, to get back to my old self. So besides having the one month personal physiotherapist, when it comes to the rehab at the hospital, I also went there and I even insisted I wanted to have more sessions because I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to feel helpless. I don't like feeling helpless, you know, being all confined to a wheelchair. No, not me. Each stroke survivor's rehabilitation process is different, depending on how the stroke has affected them and ultimately what their goals are. This one is where we say there's this lovely golden period after a stroke. All of us rehab therapists love that golden period because the brain has just been hurt, okay? So what happens is that during those first six weeks to three months, the brain is so easy to learn new things. It picks up new things much faster because it's healing. So the faster I get things going, the faster I catch this period, the better the recovery. The also the other thing is that if I can catch a patient early, I can stop all those secondary consequences, the tightness, the weakness, the isolation, as quickly as I can, I prevent as much of this as possible. So yes, there is that golden period. Yes, it's good to get them going as soon as we can. Um, there's a couple of studies, they're saying like, within two, three days, start, start moving. And 
I would like to mention rehab is intensive, but it's also very personal and tailored. And not everybody will have the same rehab. It depends on a lot of factors. If you have a very a moderate stroke, not too severe, and the cognitive function is intact, then that person, if he's within a working age, we can probably get him back to work or some form of work if the disability wasn't bad. If you have a person, an older person, let's say a person who's retired, we can get them back to walking, looking after themselves, managing themselves at home, which means I don't need an extra caregiver, which cuts costs. I can get them back to looking after their grandchildren and in, in some form of another, even supervising a home. If those with significant cognitive disabilities, I may be able to get them to be able to move around a bit so it's easier for caregivers to care for them, to get them into wheelchairs, to bathe and shower them, or even to get them to eat and to feed and, you know, to take part in activities. So the outlook with rehab, it also depends very much on the patient. Rehab seeks to optimize what there is there, bring it to an optimal level of what the patient is happy with, what the family can comfortably live with, and let them move on with life. There are outcomes whereby you say, wow, the stroke is so severe and, you know, the patient is not even able to move around a lot. But yet with rehab and educating the family on how to manage, we can still get the patient to smile, to enjoy life, to teach the family to take them out, to let them play with their grandchildren and interact. So we've had many wonderful outcomes of people of various levels of disability the those who have returned to work, contributed back, advocating for stroke and helping other stroke survivors, to those who have just learned to sit up in bed, get out of bed, smile, eat with the family, play with the grandchildren. We've had children as well, and they've gone back to school. I won't say that the ones with greater disability have got bad outcomes. They have had good outcomes in a way that they can still enjoy life. That's what rehab's about. Their goals, their life. After the break, more on the mental health of stroke survivors and the vital role of caregivers. This is NCD Chronicles, a series that takes you beyond the diagnosis of non-communicable diseases to understand the unique struggles and needs of the individuals behind the disease. Stay tuned to Health & Living, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, Lim Suan. This is an episode of NCD Chronicles, a series that explores the NCD epidemic through the voices of people living with these chronic diseases. Today, we're hearing from Noraza Abdul-Aziz, or Mama Aza as she likes to be known. She suffered a stroke in April 2017 and as a result was paralysed in her right hand and leg. But a stroke is as much about what you don't see as the disabilities that you do see. And that's something that both Tracy and Mama Aza emphasises. We normally divide them into two levels. There is that which is caused by the stroke itself. So you will have weakness, uh, weakness in the arms and the legs. And that's the most visible part people will see. Now, what they don't see, which makes a lot of people quite frustrated, especially the stroke survivor, is those that you can't see. Things like patient may have problems expressing themselves, understanding words, they may have problems with memory, reasoning, cognition, 
understanding what's happening around them. They may have problems with visual. They can't see certain sites or certain areas. So these are the visible things that can happen. They may not only have weakness, but they may have problems with movement coordination as well. So these are the primary effects of a stroke, the main ones. There are lots of little other ones like sleep, pain, central pain, lots of stuff. Then there are the secondary consequences as a result of these things happening. So a person who's not able to move around, communicate, talk, or understand is going to get very depressed, upset, angry, you name it. Then you will have the things such as they're not moving around so much anymore because they're weak. So the other muscles will get weak, you get tightness, you get stiffness, you get pain. And because they cannot communicate, they cannot move around so much, they become isolated. They become depressed. They can't mix around anymore. And it's, it's very lonely after a while, unless they've got family support and friends around them who are still rallying around them. But how long does this last? You know, people move on. And as a result of all these things, they lose their jobs. They're no longer part of the community. They're not contributing and sometimes very alone. We see physical things. We see a stick. We see an arm that is not moving. We see a person that's limping. But how many times do we actually look into their eyes and see what's happening there? We don't spend enough time with them talking and trying to find out what's helping them. What do they want? What are they feeling? And this is where Nassam kicks in because of the family way that we run things where older stroke survivors come back in and sort of buddy up with the new friends and we give stories and little short testimonies and say, look, I've done it. You can do it. But yes, we need to look at it. Depression is very prevalent among stroke survivors. And most therapists will tell you, if I cannot get my stroke survivor to want to get better, there is no way I will get them better. And they must want it. And that is that I need to get better, that willingness to move on. That is your mental health. If you are struck by a stroke, you are somehow uh, mentally affected. Your mental health is affected. You know, you keep asking yourself, uh, can I get well? When can I get well? I want to go back to my workplace. I want to be my normal self again. I want to be able to walk, talk, uh, enjoy life. Like I used to, you know, being an active person. I don't think the hospitals you know have the time uh, perhaps the expertise uh, to cater for us stroke survivors because like myself I didn't get any counseling sessions from an active independent working adult overnight mama aza found herself completely dependent on her family members it was not easy on them but she was grateful that they were always there for her now my husband my children my family members played a crucial role in helping me to recover quickly. I am most thankful that I have a loving and caring family who made enormous sacrifices for my sake. My husband, of course, was uh, my strongest pillar. 
being there by my side 24-7 and giving me encouragement all the way. My eldest son quit his job. See? He quit his job to take care of me. He was the one to lift me up, get me on the commode, etc. While my youngest daughter took care of me for one whole month, leaving behind her infant in the care of her husband. That time they were uh, staying in Kelantan. So she did most of the house chores like cooking, washing, and so on. And my other children also, although they were working, they took leaves, uh, took turns in coming to care for me. My mom, my mama, she is 84 this year. And my sister came all the way from PJ, uh, from Klanajaya, and stayed around for a few days just to lend me some moral support. And my dear cousin, who was also a retired teacher, came all the way from Alostar to stay with me a whole for a whole month to keep me company. So not just uh, my family, my relatives, even my colleagues, my friends, and my students, they came in bus loops to visit me, you know, giving me the support. In fact, I was never left alone throughout the period of recovery, which I am very thankful. Unfortunately, not everyone has someone who is willing or more importantly able to take on the role of a caregiver. It's an expensive process from the cost of rehabilitation and the medical needs of the stroke survivor to the income lost from those who've had to leave their jobs to take on that role. Especially if you are single, you know, you are single, you haven't got a spouse, you haven't got children yet. And those who, who suffered a stroke at a very young age, or perhaps uh, even if they are like 30 or 40 and still not married, then who is going to take care of them? Perhaps they have to rely on their siblings. Are their siblings willing to go to the extent of taking leaves now and then? Because... Sometimes stroke survivors, they need 24-7 care. Now, just going to the toilet may not be possible if they are paralyzed, like, like what I experienced. If my son was not around, I, uh, I can't imagine who would be the one to just lift me up, to put me in my uh, common and take me to the bathroom. I was very lucky to have a strong family support. But nowadays, no, well, it's not that money can buy everything, but sometimes if you have extra money, you can always employ a caregiver, a private nurse. Uh, some already have done that. But you must be lucky enough to have a lot, lots of money because it's not cheap, you know? To get a, a private nurse or caregiver, all these things are really, you know, these are the things that need to be considered. How to go about helping stroke survivors. Now, different stroke survivors have different difficulties, different problems. Uh, I find that the biggest struggles for me and for perhaps other stroke survivors would be uh, the financial because money is needed 
to buy all the health apparatus, you know, like I mentioned before, and then uh, paying uh, for a personal physiotherapist, and then perhaps you, if you can't drive, then perhaps you need someone to take you to and from the hospital. Um, and besides that, maybe for some, it would be not just financial, but maybe the caregivers, you know, getting a, a true caregiver or caregivers is not that easy. Some people may not have uh, a family that can you know, uh, spare you time to take care of your needs and worries. You know, you and you also need someone to talk to. Like myself, I was never left alone. There was always someone beside me to talk, you know. Uh, so I was not left alone in my room. We don't really recognize caregivers, I think, in general in our healthcare system. I know the medical system and the people I work with, the doctors I work with, all really look out for the caregiver. Because we have a saying, the caregiver gives way, everything gives way. And we always tell our caregivers, please look after yourself first before you try and manage your family member or friend. Because if you can't manage yourself and you don't do well, who's looking after your friend or family member? Support-wise, the National Stroke Association would be there for them, help them with mentoring as well. Little bits of tips, bit of advice. But I believe we can do more. We should do more. If a caregiver needs to take time off work to look after their family member, that is income loss. That is a greater stress on that system. Can we support them when this happens? Can we not have a way that if a caregiver needs some help, a bit of rest, there's a place where we can maybe park the family member for one or two days so that the caregiver can have a break. Normally, other family members would do that. Normally, uh, we would use a nursing home. But what if they don't have other family members? Because we know in Malaysia, our extended family is shrinking. And if your younger generation is getting sick, our uh, older generation to help, uh, it's, it's going to be tough, okay? So can we help them? Because if they buckle, who's going to look after the person who's ill? It, it's very expensive. It is very expensive. Just for example, if you're doing physiotherapy outside, your sessions will range between $100, $150, $200 per session, depending on whether you're going private, house call, Government, it's at least that's covered. That's, again, a, a different thing. Mm -hmm. But if you do it privately, if you're doing like $100 three times a week, once a month, every month is, you know, three times a week is like 12 sessions a month. That's 1,002 a month. That's a lot of money. And that's just physio. And there's occupational and there's speech. Okay, that it can run into thousands a month. And that's the aftercare. You can look at things like, a can of a milk, okay? People use that sometimes because the food goes through a tube. They can't swallow. A can of that is about $80 to $90. You use six scoops per meal. A can may last you two to three days. It's going to be expensive just to get the food in. 
never mind the diapers. So if the person needs care at home, everybody's going out to work. What happens? Either somebody quits their job, which means loss of income, stay home, or the person has to go to a nursing home. Nursing homes between three to $6,000 a month. Again, it's not cheap. And that's without rehab. And sometimes the $3,000 is before the diapers and extra expenses. So it is again expensive. Keeping them at home, you may have to bring in a caregiver. Caregivers, you know the problems we had trying to get caregivers. One, they're expensive. Two, trying to find one. So if the person quits a job, stay home, that's loss of income. You bring in a caregiver, again, it's loss of income. If you have a person who is in the middle of their career, 40s, 50s, okay, kid is about to go to university, breadwinner just has a stroke. Insurance will probably cover the stroke. Who's covering kid going overseas? Family plans just go straight out the window. Then you have in the community itself that loss of that person contributing to the community and now the community having to support them. That will, of course, impact your cost of living, your quality of life, your you know, contribution to taxes. Everything goes down here. No one wants to suffer from a stroke, but the risk of a stroke increases for people who already have existing health issues like hypertension, diabetes, high cholesterol levels, obesity and heart disease. These are all entities that Malaysians are all too familiar with. So, are we taking strokes seriously? We do take stroke seriously. That's how I feel we do. We, we understand that at the moment there's a loss in function and ability, it's pretty serious. But I feel that our ability to control the stroke risk factors are the main problems. So how serious are we taking our stroke risk factors? Our healthcare system is pushing very hard to control your NCDs, your obesities, your diabetes, your, your high cholesterols, your hypertension. Those are your main NCDs that are driving stroke. So our healthcare system is pushing that. But whether our society and our way of life and our lifestyle is able to accommodate it is another thing because we, look, we work long hours, our diets, our food availability, what are we eating out there? Do we have time to exercise? Our work-life balance goes a bit off sometimes. So yes, we do take stroke seriously, but can we take the things that cause stroke seriously? Can we manage that and survive? That's the thing that is, I think, is where we're having a major problem within our country. So, what needs to be done? Tracy thinks that we'll need to change things every step of the way, from stroke prevention to long-term stroke care. I think my first priority, and I won't just say it's for just the public health care system, is the entire system, the whole system. I mean, if you look at the NCD report, the NCD report basically involves a lot of ministries, is that not only to have better education and awareness about stroke prevention, because it's so, so, so preventable if you can just manage those hypertension and risk factors, okay? is to just get them to create an environment where that is something you can manage. It's difficult. Then what we do is to make sure that the community itself understands stroke, recognize it, what to do, 
get to a hospital and what to do after the acute episode. It's very, very important because if you don't get that message across, they go home, there's no management, they can restroke, and there's all those secondary consequences without rehab. Then actually look at acute management, get more stroke-worthy hospitals out there so that we can catch them and prevent severe disability. Then rehab, get them going, optimize healthcare, optimize quality of life, and then long-term stroke care. Because if we have good long-term stroke care management, we prevent a lot of the other disabilities that come along because of the stroke. So it's a lot of things that we need to look at. Having retired from her job as a school principal, Mama Aza is proud of the milestones she's achieved as her rehabilitation progressed. Now she's sharing her story to show others that there is life after stroke. Well, in terms of uh, the the fine motors uh, that will that that took quite a longer period of time. But then I had this, uh, you know, being a teacher, always jotting down, having journals, diaries, and I. What happened was I, on my own initiative, I started writing in a journal. I started making the first entry on the twenty eighth of April. That would be like uh, two weeks, uh, more than two weeks after the stroke. And later on, I started to learn how to write ABC. Then as, as time goes on, it gets better and better. I already shared this uh, with my friends, you know, uh, those who are stroke, uh, uh, stroke survivors also. For example, the fine motor aspect let's say on the 29th of may i was able to cut my fingernails using my right hand well that is quite an achievement i'm very glad that i am able to walk again and uh quite a number of milestones that i have achieved for example um I can do my daily chores like a normal person, as a wife, as a mother, even as a grandmother. I have traveled alone by flight from KT to KL safely without any assistance, traveling alone. Uh, I and I, I go for holidays. Even when we, we even went overseas with my family. Well, I am I am enjoying life as it is. And my latest milestone is I am able to drive again. I pick up my grandchildren from school. I go to the market. I go shopping, sometimes alone. And anywhere I feel like it. So this freedom and independence is priceless. Now, for me, I would say that there is life after stroke, you know. Uh, you must have a positive mind. So whatever difficulty comes your way, there is always a way out. And now that I am fully recovered, I like to help others. Uh, so to all the strokies out there, please be strong, get back on your feet. Please get help and uh, support from family members and the right medication from the doctors. Uh, you shouldn't be alone in your struggle. Please join Nasam like me to get more info and uh, services on stroke, you know, getting to getting into the groups of the so-called all in the same boat, all the stroke survivors all there to give you 
support support each other so that's much to look forward to i'm really happy i'm happy with my life i happy i'm happy with my status today uh, although i i decided to ha uh, have an earlier retirement i was supposed to retire in 2020 but then i you know after the after suffering the stroke what i did was to really have a um, self reflection on i've been serving more than 37 years so it's time for me to step back and enjoy myself have quality time have time for me time and also for my family uh, and also time to travel and take it easy so no worries i would like to you know uh, reach out to the others to tell them that well you are not alone This has been NCD Chronicles, a series featuring the experiences and challenges of people with non-communicable diseases. If you missed any part of the show or any previous episodes, you can search for it on bfm.my or on our BFM app. You've been listening to Health and Living on BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.